Okay, everyone, if you want to find a seat, we're going to get started as we continue in the book of Exodus, which is where we're studying this summer. We've been having fun. Um, I want to make sure and um, just reiterate and invite all of you on Wednesday. We have our summer midrash going on. We've been having a blast just kind of talking about and wrestling with the meaning of the text and its meaning for us. So if you're free on Wednesday around noon, grab a brown bag lunch and come join with us in our summer midrash. Last week, of course, we covered the birth narrative of Moses. Um, we talked about the theme of water that runs throughout his life and these strong daughters who really begin the exodus, the midwives, his mother, Yochaved, um, Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter, they all end up saving his life and propelling him so that um, Moshe, M Moses, ends up growing up in Pharaoh's palace in Mitzrayim, in Egypt. Um, now, in the, in the Hebrew tradition, uh, Moses' life is kind of divided into three periods. There's 40 years in Pharaoh's household, 40 years in the exile in Midian, and 40 years in the wilderness. Um, and Deuteronomy says he dies at the ripe old age of 120 with good eyesight and strong bones. I don't know why the detail, but that's what it says. Um, but um, s some rabbis, of course, and Christians take this literally. Most recognize that the 40s here are figurative numbers. It, for, to, to be 40 meant a man was sort of mature enough to live on his own. I think that's a stretch for some of us, but that's what they thought. Um, 80 meant they had reached full maturity. At 120 meant they'd lived a good life, you know, a ripe old age. It's not probably meant to be taken literal numbers. They indicate these life stage transitions. And so most rabbis that I read this week actually date Moses at, at 20, 21, 22 years old at this point in the story. And there's this gap between baby Moses and when he's turned over to the palace in the, the next story we're going to read. And we're not really told what happened. We know that the custom would have been that he would have had 12 years of education in the royal schools where the man, young men who had one day run the empire of Egypt were trained. They learned to read and write. They learned history and politics. They studied warfare and learned to fight. And so Moses would have been taught how the empire functioned and groomed to play some role as a member of the royal family. And we pick up the story then in verse 11 of chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days, and it starts with and, which if you remember is where the book of Exodus starts. And so that kind of signals to us we're beginning a new section. In fact, the rabbis are very in a, a Twitter about this. This should be a new chapter. They're very angry about where the chapters come. But this, this is a new chapter, and it came to pass. It says in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his achim. It means um, brother or it can mean half brother or it can mean like a group, a, a tribe or your kinsmen. And so this tells us whatever else has happened in this intervening time, Moses still feels this connection to the Hebrew people. He still considers himself a Hebrew man. And he went out and looked on their save a lot, their, their burdens, their heavy labors. And he spied an Egyptian mache um, beating. It's um, beating, or um, it can mean killing, but beating. Um, and Aish Ivri, a man, Hebrew, one of his achim, one of his brother, his, his kinsmen. And weyar wekoko, um, it means he's facing or, or seeing um, this and this. 
That's literally what it means. So it, it, it's their way of saying he was looking this way and that. He's looking all, all around. We can interpret this a couple of different ways. He could be looking to see if anybody's going to jump in and, and stop this, you know, thinking, you know, when me and my friends do this in the palace, somebody puts a stop to it before somebody gets killed. Like, where's the help here? Or he could be checking to see if anybody's watching because he's about to do something um, bad. Either way, what I want us to notice is that in this phrase, this looking this and this, there is this sense in which Moses is choosing between um, his Hebrew identity and his Egyptian identity in this moment, which is something I think we can all relate to. There are just these times in our life we have to choose between our Christian identity and some other rival identity that tries to name us because we're, we're, they're in conflict. Um, we hear this constantly from students at Redemption that feel there's this, this struggle between kind of their, their identity as Christians and faith and family community and then this persona they take on at school and with their friends. Um, I often hear this um, at Redemption from bosses and small business owners um, more, more than you might think, I hear this in, in a church of our size, that a time in which like the smart play is to cut an employee loose, um, but the compassionate thing is to keep them around and try to work with them. And even though doing so will be more costly than, than firing them. So there's this, this clash sometimes between a person's capitalist identity that says, do the best thing for your bottom line, and a Christian identity that says, do the best for this human being. And we all, all face these kind of moments where we, we look this and this. We try to decide between um, our Christian identity and maybe like our national identity, our consumer identity, our individual identity. And so Moses is in one of those moments, and this is really the decision of his young life. And it says, and when he saw there was no Aish, no man, he weyak the Egyptian, he... Um, he beat or killed him. It's the same verb that's used earlier for what the taskmaster is doing to the, to, the, to the slave. He beat this man to death. And it says, and hid him in the sand. So he's clearly chosen his Hebrew identity here. Um, he picked a side and, and, and all, you know, setting aside the violence for at least a moment, we learn that Moses has this high moral sensitivity to injustice. If he sees a situation in which someone's abused and mistreated, he can't stand it. He, and it, it gets him all fired up, and he will involve himself in this situation and try to correct the problem. And in this case, we're meant to see that his actions were unwise. This is an overreaction. He's being rash and, and foolish. Verse 13 says, And when he went out on the second day, he looked... And two um, Anashim Ivram, two men, again, Hebrew, were Nishim. It means um, um, they were striving. It, actually, the, the word is a funny word. It means that they were um, in a verbal quarrel, an argument, that turned physical. That's literally what it means. So they were, they were arguing, and then it turned into a scuffle. And if somebody doesn't put a stop to it, this is going to get really bad. And so... Moses, he said to the rasha, this means guilty party. So he had seen enough of it to know who was at fault here, whoever struck the first blow and, and took it violent. He said, why do you strike um, your re'eka, um, strike their 
uh, or reikai's companion, strike. It's the same word. It's the third time they've used this word that is often beat or, or it can mean killed. And so the Egyptian beating the slave, then you have um, Moses beating the Egyptian. Now you have two, two Hebrew slaves beating each other. They're all, it's all using the same exact word. So they're all doing the same thing. But this guy calls out Moses. And he said, who made you a Sar and Shaphat, a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? And it says, Moses became, became frightened. He, clearly, he thought, the matter has become known. And so he has this moment of freak out. And, and he, he's right. When It says, when Pharaoh heard of it, he tried to have Moses put to death. But Moses fled from Pharaoh to live in the land of Midian. Okay. So what do we make of this, this first half of our text for today? Um, we, could, we could do a lot of things. A couple things that I think are important. Um, one is that Moses' rescue of the Hebrew man kind of foreshadows how he's going to rescue his people. And then the man's grumbling sort of foreshadows what his people's response is going to be to Moses when they get out into the wilderness. So that's one thing. But really kind of the, the biggest tension in this text centers on Moses's use of violence. God, um, I mean, he's standing for injustice here. God does not vindicate what he does. Moses is right to be angry at, at the injustice, but somehow he addresses it in, in a wrong way. Um, several interpreters, I had never really heard this before, some, some were Jewish interpreters, some were Christian interpreters, suggest that Moses, they think, was um, likely going out to see his people every day, and that he was trying to foment some kind of rebellion here, a revolution. He was bothered by the way his people were, his identity was still with them, and he was trying to get something going where he would lead them to freedom. And this attack, they think, was, was meant to trigger an uprising. But even his own people didn't have his back at this point. Nobody wants to follow Moses as a leader in this point in the story. Moses is clearly feeling his identity is, is one of the people of God. He is activated by the injustice. He's taking sides. He's making moves. But they're all the wrong moves here at the beginning. The people ignore him, and God doesn't um, vindicate him. God seems to be um, not identifying with, like, his way of seeing the struggle. The way, you might say, the way he was taught for all those years in Pharaoh's household to address an injustice. You just go, go kill the guy, right? And God seems to be concerned with this atmosphere of violence they're living in. The dehumanizing violence that everybody has to deal with anytime there's an empire in play. And, and when it turns violent, God does not respond, and neither do the Hebrew people. And that's, that's a key issue for Moses and really for all the prophets. The man's language here toward him, it's, it's hostile. I mean, he is, he's going at, and he, he accuses him essentially of murder. And, he, and he's using the sim, same language, but he's saying, my beating wasn't like your beating. Your beating was, was murder. It's this accusation, and, and Moses has no answer. The man asks him a question. He does not answer. He, he has no mandate from God or from the people. And so we're meant to see that this kind of violence really cannot effectively address the injustice that the Hebrew people are facing. All Moses does 
really in this situation is surrender the high ground. He's compromised and left kind of speechless. Not a good thing to be if you're the prophet. You cannot be speechless. Your main job is words, right? And so in the face of this accusation, all Moses can do is, is run, take off running, go to run to Midian, be safe from Pharaoh. Um, real quick, I want to look at the map of where this is. So we've been working through our locations here. Midian is down there on the far side of the Gulf uh, between uh, Arabia and the Sinai Peninsula. So it's over there. It's kind of a nomadic area. Um, people, tribes, and travel all around, um, down around there. Let's read on. One day, as he was sitting by a well, the um, Shiva Banat is seven daughters, which, of course, seven could mean literally seven, but seven is like the number of completion. It could mean all the daughters, like this guy had all the daughters that he could handle at this point, Casey. And the, um, <laughs> Casey has all the daughters. The, so the, the, um, the seven daughters of the priest of Midian came to draw water. So your bell should be going off your head here. We've got two big themes. We got daughters and we got water going on right here. So something big is going to happen. Um, and their, their father is a priest to one of the gods of Midian. We don't know what they were, but it says, um, they came to the well with the sheep. They filled the troughs to water their father's sheep when the shepherds came and tried to drive them away. But Moses got up and defended them. Of course he did. Then he watered their sheep. So the, the daughters have come early. They're, he apparently doesn't have sons. The daughters watch the sheep in this family. And they bring them early, probably to avoid the shepherds in the first place. They have to draw water up by um, using ropes and, and little bladders that they would make out of, like, stomachs of animals. It's all very gross. And they would pull this up and fill up a trough, and then their sheep could come get their drink in the morning. And these, um, these shepherds then show up later, and they try to drive the ladies off and put their flocks in drinking the water that they drew up. Right? It's kind of the ancient equivalent to a boss taking credit for his subordinate's work, right? Similar deal. It's not violent, it's just rude, right? And disrespectful. And so Moses, of course, can't help himself. He has to stand up and say something. As soon as he sees an injustice, he is like personally involved and activated. And here he intervenes, but there's no mention of violence this time. Just secures the water, helps the, the girls do their job. And then it says, verse 18, when they came to Ruel, that's his name, their father, he said, how come you're back so soon today? And they answered, an Egyptian, he must have looked like an Egyptian because he had been in Pharaoh's house. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. More than that, he drew water for us and watered the sheep. And he asked his daughters, and this part always makes me, makes me laugh. He asked his daughters, where is he? Why did you leave the man there? Why, invite him to have something to eat. It's funny because... Um, this priest of Midian, um, you know, traveling on Midian, he, he needs, he has all daughters. He needs husbands more than he needs those sheep. He's like, what are you, what are you doing? Why didn't you bring that guy back here? Um, so that Moses is a godsend to him. And so we're told Moses was glad to stay with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. And she gave birth to a son and named him Gershom. Um, for he said, I have been a foreigner in a strange land. That's what I mean. Gershom is foreigner, strange land, or sojourner. And so the result this time when he intervenes is not violent. 
And so the outcome of it is relationships, new relationships. And so there are these, these three scenes in which Moses encounters some kind of conflict or controversy or injustice. There's the, the Egyptian man beating the Hebrew slave. There's the Hebrew slaves fighting each other. And then there's the, uh, the Midianite shepherds who abuse and harass the daughters. And in all three, Moses um, intervenes on behalf of the victims. And so we kind of, we learn a little bit about his personality, his makeup, and his, his character. Moses just, he can't stand injustice, large or small. I mean, the, the well thing with the shepherds, this is not a, not a big deal. He could have just sat there. It's not that big of a deal, but he can't. He, he can't help himself. He feels it deeply and just involves himself. And part of what the Hebrew people have taken from this is that this is the archetype of the prophet. That's what the prophet's like. It's part of what makes the prophet a prophet. They just can't stand it. They just can't sit there and watch something happen. They have this high sensitivity to injustice. Um, one of my favorite writers on this, Abraham Joshua Heschel, says it this way. Their breathless impatience with injustice may strike us as hysteria, but to the prophets, even a minor injustice assumes cosmic proportions. It's, it's the world out of whack, and they just can't handle it. And so Moses, he can't let anything go, man. He swings at every single pitch. And this is just sort of what the prophets are like. They're highly annoying. That's why they were always trying to kill them. Um, <laughs> however, Moses is mostly unsuccessful here. He's, he's not really very good as a social justice warrior in the beginning. He can barely even make it happen with, with the shepherds. And, and the reason um, we will see it stems from a kind of subtle difference in the narrative between the way God views justice and the way he was taught justice in Pharaoh's household. It's actually an incredibly important question for all of us, especially in our society. Um, this is actually the, the symbol of justice that we're used to seeing. So this is outside of courthouses. It's in courtrooms all over the place. This is Lady Justice. And it actually comes from Greek mythology and, and the goddess Themis, the god of justice. But, but look at them and notice the difference, the major difference between the two. They, they both hold a scale, but our vision of Lady Justice is blindfolded, right? And, and this is what we think. In American society, justice should be blind. Um, in the ancient world, they didn't do this. But blindfolds were a, um, a symbol of deception. Someone's deceiving you. For us, this actually conveys impartiality. So justice is supposedly blind to things like race or, or gender or religion or sexuality or nationality, all of those things. It's supposed to be blind even though everyone knows it's not, right? The billionaires have a different set of you know, laws, different set of consequences than the rest of us. And there are all those kinds of injustice things that are peculiar to communities and areas. And, and so the, it's supposed to be blind, even though it's, it's really not. So like, who's really blind? And then, there's, then they're both holding these scales, right? And the scales are a symbol of how justice is meant to function. Evidence weighed carefully. And if you're innocent, you're set free, the scales go back to zero. If you're guilty, you're punished. And the punishment needs to be proportional to the crime. And the scales both go back to, to zero. And it's meant to bring a sense of balance. 
It's almost mechanical. I mean, it, it is, scales are a mechanism. And as long as you have the settings right, this, the machine of justice, right, should just crank out justice for all. But um, we know this is not what happens. The fear, of course, is the more um, people are involved, the more unjust it'll be. But at the same time, the more mechanical it becomes, the less human it is. And this seems to be a real problem for God. This is what God chooses to focus on. Um, we've all probably been in a situation where like the rigid justice, adherence to laws and rules um, becomes kind of unjust. Um, it's, it's, you know, mandatory minimums in sentencing. It's um, teachers who are super strict with behavior in their classrooms or parents with these inflexible rules. These are mechanical views of justice that are meant to kind of take human prejudice out of it, but they end up um, perpetuating injustice and usually then damaging human relationships if it's an overly mechanical view of justice. And that's, you know, our model of justice in our society. This is what we think. Justice is meant to be blind and impartial, and it's based on restoring balance after an injustice has occurred. So if you steal $2,000 from somebody, you'll have to pay the money back. You'll probably pay a hefty fine and maybe some, you know, jail time or community service, and then the scales are sort of satisfied and, and we can balance that out, right? But the, God's view of justice takes it a little further. Say it's not just you just stole two grand, you stole two grand from me and we're friends. You can pay it back and do your, your service and your time and scales of justice are, are satisfied, but what about us? What about our relationship? That, that's a different kind of Justice required. How can that be restored? Justice in our society is sometimes what is called retributive justice. It's based on punishing offenders and compensating victims, right? Bringing the scales back to justice, um, to, to balance. Retributive, retributive justice works for a lot of things, but it doesn't really address the relational side of justice, injustice. And that's really Moses' problem at this point. He's got some lessons to learn in terms of the way that God plans to address injustice in the world. Because God works on a, on a different model. And it's a model that really comes to us in the scriptures, mostly through the prophets. I mentioned earlier this guy, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who's, who has taught me a lot about justice over the years. He says that God's justice doesn't work through the, the scales and the blindfolds. This is too mechanical and impersonal. And it's, for him, he's, he calls it dispassionate. And God is passionate. God cares about people and relationships. And God's goal isn't balance. God's goal is love. God cares about restoring relationships. And so Heschel says the better, um, the better, image or metaphor comes from the prophet Amos, who says, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. So Heschel says, instead of like a blindfolded lady justice with the scales, God's justice is like a river. It's this never failing stream that isn't based on like a principle called justice or on a mechanism for restoring it. It's based on 
righteousness. In Hebrew, it's tzedakah. It's, um, it actually literally means charitable giving. That's what justice is based on, giving of yourself charitably. It's, it's about the basic moral obligations that we owe to one another. It's not mechanical. It's relational. And it's rooted in, like, self-sacrifice. God wants justice that restores relationships. And the, the image is a, a river that sort of, um, not everybody could swim in the ancient world. So rivers weren't, you didn't like go rafting on rivers, you know. Rivers are dangerous. So it's, it's a river that just overwhelms the parties involved, sweeps them off their feet, sort of disarms them, pulls them into this kind of roiling, raging motion and flow in which they finally realize they can't control the world. They can't control their own destiny, even through violence and power. They're going to have to just surrender to the current here and begin to flow with God's spirit. Heschel writes, the image of scales conveys the idea of form, standard, balance, measure, stillness. The image of a mighty stream expresses content, substance, power, movement, vitality. Like one's in control, one's a little bit out of control. You see, God actually um, wants God's people to care about injustice and to pursue justice. The problem is we're not very good at it, right? We think justice is retribution. I mean, just watch a couple of, you know, three, four, five-year-old kids about how they feel about justice. It's all retribution, baby. It's like just hit people back. And this is how we think. And we, we see that not working, so we think, well, let's just make it kind of mechanical. Let's take the feelings and emotions out of it. That's actually what often you'll see the, the blindfold and the scales, the sword is meant to say precision. Like we can really cut through the issue and get to, to the heart of it and make things right. And to do this, what we end up doing is taking people out of it, relationships out of it. I mean, judges like recuse themselves if they know the people involved. And in court, you've you seen the dramas, and, and, and in a courtroom, they, they split people up, put a big gulf in between them. They, they don't even talk to each other. They have their own counselors, right, that do all the talking. This is, this is how we do it. Opposite sides divided, trying to balance the scale, and looking for some way to do that, and, and the balance just never comes. And for Heschel, he says, God has something completely different in mind. This metaphor can't even... It's not really any help to us for most things. And he says, the problem is, one step back, where humans have reduced justice to a concept that God's in, in favor of and that we're chasing. This idea of balance is kind of our deal. And it's defined by the scales and the blindfold. Heschel actually says, it's kind of... A radical thing to say, and some, of, some people have really criticized him for it, but I think he's right. He says, God doesn't care about justice. It's not that God loves some principle called justice. God's concern is for people. And justice gets in the way of, injustice gets in the way of their flourishing. He writes this, God's concern for justice grows out of his compassion for man. That's, that's really important. The prophets do not speak of a divine relationship to an absolute principle or ideal called justice. Part of the reason it can't be that is because if you make um, God beholden to 
a principle, then the principle is the real God, right? God is free. God is not subject. That's, that's one of the important differences between the scales and the river. The river is wonky and out of control. So he says, God, God doesn't speak of a divine relationship to an absolute principle or idea called justice. The prophets are intoxicated with the awareness of God's relationship to his people and to all men. A little tag to just, you know, tick off everybody who is, you know, passionately Jewish, then or now. God's heart is not attached to some ideal of justice. It's attached to people. And not just the Hebrew people, to all men, all people. Which, for Moses, should include the Egyptians. So God's desire for justice flows out of God's love for humankind. It's not a concept that you can keep in balance or an impartial mechanism that works, you know, the less human interference, the better. God's view of justice comes from his love for human people. And because of that, this need for things to work together peacefully. And it doesn't seem to require a mechanism. What it seems to require is human beings who are wise enough to pursue it together through their relationships. Walter Brueggemann, um, I heard them say this probably 10 years ago, and it, it blew me away, and I think I've thought about it over and over since then. He said, one of the big lessons of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible is that there is no way a bureaucracy of any kind can ever substitute for human wisdom. There's just no system that can be a person, a wise person. And that's what God is after. Not a system of justice, but wise human beings who can help communities navigate relationships. This kind of justice is often called restorative justice. It's, it, it's based on you know, rehabilitating defenders or offenders and reconciling parties. Not, not just punishing and collecting fines, but getting people to tell the truth about what happened and making amends and finding closure. And it can be a little bit messy, but it's, it's much more effective than retribution. And the problem is everybody builds their systems on retributive justice. And we don't really know how to do restorative justice. And, and retribution's everywhere. I mean, I grew up watching... Old westerns with my dad. That's the, all those movies are. They show him an injustice and then retribution, and we all cheer, right? It's, it's every Quentin Tarantino film ever, and it's in all of our narratives. So it ends up being in our lives. Like it becomes the way we parent our kids, the way we navigate education and classrooms is retribution. It's the way we do court stuff, and, and we try to balance the scales, and it, it, it can't happen. And the farther away you get from people and toward this mechanism, the more problems you end up having, which brings us back to Moses on the sideline in Midian for a very specific reason. And that is that violence, when violence enter in, enters in, no system can restore justice. I mean, retributive justice can, can never balance violence. Um, when, when, when Moses goes after that Egyptian, and kills him, the scales are tipped. I mean, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube there. Like, all he can do is run at that point. And this was kind of a signal to God he's not ready to lead yet. Even his own people could see it. 
And, and I think in our world, we see a similar thing with the retributive um, justice. It, it can be effective in, in many things, like speeding tickets, parking violations, stuff like that. It's, it's great for that. But it can't do anything with violence because you can't undo violence. If someone, you know, God forbid, murders a, a child, you know, they can be caught, tried, convicted, punished, put in jail forever, or even executed. But it, according to the scales, that's a life for a life, right? But you can't, you can't balance that out. That's done. Hauerwas calls it a wrong so wrong, it can never be made right, right? Violence is relational, and it ripples out into our lives, and when it's introduced, the damage goes through the roof. I mean, after, what, 20 years of wars on terror in the Middle East, are, are there fewer terrorists? Do we all feel safer yet, you know? Violence begets more violence. And this is part of why Moses is sidelined at this point in the story. He's not ready to do restoration he thinks he can win the justice through, you know, Pharaoh's way, armies, force, power. And restorative justice is a different animal. It's God's way of doing things. And it's, it, it can handle much more complicated um, situations of, of injustice because it's rooted in wisdom. When the moment violence introduced, like, we're off the rails. Retribution is completely ineffective then, and even rest restorative justice, it's possible, but it's very, very difficult and rare. And for this vision, what we need, I love Heschel's image, what we need is a rushing river of God's love just to sweep us off our feet and pull us in a direction where we're mostly disoriented, you know, head over heels, and, and frankly, don't want to go in the first place, so we have to be kind of knocked off our feet anyway. And this is sort of why Moses gets dragged off to Midian, where he can learn wisdom and love. This is actually one of the ways I've, I've come to talk about and, and understand Jesus's, everything he says about the kingdom of God in the New Testament. That the kingdom of God is like, it's like a river, and it, and it has mass and trajectory. It's going somewhere particular, right? A place where sin and death and decay no longer have the final word in people's lives and they can all flourish. And it's moving. It's going somewhere. And eventually it, it pulls all of us into the flow, every human person. And we have a choice when we get there. We can either learn to try to swim with it and, and so to flourish, or we can try to go against it and it will tear us to pieces. It will grind us into dust. And, and in this river, our anger, our need for vengeance, our mechanical worldview, our expertise, our rules and laws, the scales, the blindfold, the sword, our desire for retribution, our need for control, our recourse to power and violence, it can't do us any good in the river. And I think all of us um, struggle with these things just like Moses do. And then we end up in, in Midian trying to learn wisdom, which is really just to see the world the way God sees it. Um, in, in a sense, just trying to learn how to love and to figure out how to participate in restoration, not retribution.
Restoration is forgiveness, grace. It's costly. It costs us. Um, it's hard. And it's not what we're taught here in Pharaoh's household. And so if we, if we feel a little bit sidelined in our lives at points, stuck, a little ineffective against the injustice around us, maybe this signals to us that we have some work to do, like Moses, on how to lay down our need to control things, our violent tendencies, our, you know, wanting our pound of flesh, man. That kills relationship. And how do we lay that down and pick up restoration? This is what we learn in Midian. And so um, today's text, I think, beckons us just to leave it there. Like we're not going to wrap it up in a, in a bow. We're not going to solve the tension. We're just going to kind of stop here with Moses and Midian, way far away from his calling, trying to learn wisdom. And just think about our own lives and um, work in our jobs, living in our neighborhoods, in our families, and our friendships. How is our life now preparing us so that when we face injustice in the world, we're, we face it with wisdom that's trained on restoration, not retribution? Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would um, go with us today, be with us this week as we think through the Exodus lens and as we sort of sit in Midian with Moses with this kind of big elephant in the room of the injustice that plagues our world. And we ask you to... Um, Stay with us this week. And give us eyes to see our own lives and the world around us. Amen. I invite you to stand um, together and we're going to receive communion. Um, we are um, trying to get back to our normal movements. And so today we're going to actually receive communion, come forward to receive communion. Um, you're still going to get the little shrink-wrapped baby, and you can take it back to your seats and un un undo it there and, and receive it there. But we wanted to at least get kind of the movement again. So we'll have folks up here in front. You can come forward, and they can say to you the words we say, which is remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can receive communion from somebody else. So baby steps. We're getting back to the, to the normal thing. Um, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he broke it and had given thanks for it, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also after supper, he took the cup and passed it around to his guys and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death until I come again. And he said, every time you gather, just do this. Um, take my life into your life. And so this is why we receive communion. And we invite everyone who calls on the name of Jesus to join us at the table. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. 
And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world um, feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?